want to know what it is. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Yeah, hello again from me. So, uh, you know, given that the theme of today is like optimization and uh, optimizing the entire 24-hour period, then we can't neglect food and eating because that's like one of the most important things for any living organism to do. And uh, it's also like something biohackers are especially interested in. So there's a lot of room for optimization in our diets and especially the food choices and when we do it and in, in what quantities and in what formulations and combinations, all those things. So, you know, if you were to try to define what is optimal nutrition, then uh, you, may, you may, might have heard from many different people like uh, don't eat meat, don't eat vegetables, don't eat you know, gluten or whatever it is. Those are very vague terms and very vague definitions of trying to you know, define what is good to eat. So uh, actually, you know, an objective definition of optimal nutrition would have to include, it would have to be like very objective in a sense. It's not specific, it's not uh, tailored to a specific individual or it, ha it has to be, have this sort of a, a objective um, appliance that you can apply to any situation. And the term that I like to use for optimal nutrition is eating the right things in the right amounts at the right time. So this definition covers all of those things objectively and you can change it all the time depending on the situation. Like you can change the, the, uh, the nutrients, you can change the amounts and you can change when do you consume them. And all those things differ between people. What's their metabolic status? What's their nutrient requirements, etc. So we're not, you know, one diet isn't the best thing for another person because we have different metabolisms and different conditions. So the goal of my, you know, this lecture is to kind of give you these principles and guidelines about how do you, how do you find these right things, the right amounts and what's the right time for eating. And uh, timing is actually one of those um, pretty underlooked aspects. So, you know, you know, you know that so some foods are better than others, but science is also becoming to know more that the timing of when you consume them is actually a lot more important than we previously thought, especially with the you know, new research and new studies about circadian rhythms and chronobiology, those sorts of things. You know, our environment sends us certain signals uh, that stimulate and uh, govern many of the body's own physiological processes. So those are the circadian rhythms inside your body. And those circadian rhythms are connected with the light and, light and uh, darkness cycles of the environment as well. So the timing is actually one of the essential components to optimal nutrition and uh, diet. So I'm, I'm not going to be talking a lot about the circadian rhythms, but uh, this is a good you know, overview of the basics. So first of all, they are circadian rhythms are these biological day and night cycles, uh, both inside, your, inside yourself as well as the ones that are happening around you. Like the planet itself is a massive circadian rhythm, like day and night, the sun and the moon, uh, wakefulness and sleep, eating and not eating, those sorts of things. Uh, secondly, th these rhythms are controlled uh, not only by light, but also by food, movement, temperature, uh, even like magnetic frequencies and those sort of things, they all affect how these um, 
circadian patterns affect your physiology. And third, misalignment from these rhythms is very much associated with things like diabetes, uh, obesity, depression, neurodegeneration, just chronic fatigue, being tired, insomnia. And yeah, like it is uh, deranges your body because you're out of sync with the natural rhythms that you're supposed to be following. And uh, on the opposite hand, being aligned with these rhythms is going to just make it that much easier for you to stay healthy and uh, also, uh, you know, be more productive and be more happier. Uh, fourth, sleep. Sleeping, sleeping is pretty important uh, for keeping yourself aligned with the circadian rhythms because the sleep is the recovery process where your body is repairing itself from the daily activities and especially physical activities and even like thinking and um, memory retention. And lastly, one of the easiest or one of the core principles of these uh, circadian rhythms or the alignment of them is to try to get more sunlight during the daytime and when it's dark outside, avoid as much as, as much as light as possible because uh, the light is a very powerful stimulator of these rhythms and if you're shooting artificial light into your eyes in the evening, then you're not really telling your brain that it's time to sleep. You're telling it the opposite, that it's time to be awake. And this is causing like this uh, misalignment and uh, disruptions of these rhythms, which then leads to a lot of health, health problems. So what is seen happening now to me metabolically? Because I was uh, doing all the summit work last night, like, uh, stuff. Well, metabolically, like uh, sleep, let's say poor sleep uh, is, is going to make your body less able to metabolize uh, carbohydrates and glucose, so to say. So you're pre-diabetic, <laughs> almost. Well, at, almost. <laughs> today, eating actually a low-carb meal Would be better. makes more sense yes. than go for, going for carbohydrates. Now, when you haven't slept enough, have you ever craved for more sugar? Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of... Uh, it's a worse situation because you're like, yeah. psychologically, you want more of this junk food but physiologically, your body is the least capable of handling it, and it's going to be more damaging to you. <laughs> so it's a, like a very vicious feedback. And, and if you actually stick into more like um, high fat, uh, low carb kind of thing, you will have better steady energy, and not yeah, you don't crash as easily if you take carbohydrates. Like it's just uh, <laughs> sleep right away. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So, so what's the why the process is like? Why our body craves that sugar? Yeah. In that situation. It's uh, essentially like sleep deprivation is like a minor brain concussion. Your brain is experiencing like a concussion as if you were hit in the head and it's, it needs more energy to repair itself. And uh, the main, like default main fuel source for the brain and most cells is glucose and sugar because it's very easily metabolized and quickly like stored. But at the same time, your body, your brain and body and brain can run, also run on different fuel sources like fats and ketones and uh, lactic, lactic acid, those sort of things. So uh, in that situation, uh, the providing the alternative would be a better solution because you're satisfying the brain's energy demands without causing this, this sort of a, you know, rise in blood sugar and without damaging your um, you know, healthy cells and your person. <laughs> well, because it is like, a, yeah, it def default, se default setting in a sense because glucose and uh, carbs are much more 
easily stored as FET because uh, you know they're supposed to be following through, through the cycles like during the winter you don't have like much carbs and sugar in the nature you, you get those uh, carbs and sugars during the fall and during the summertime when you're supposed to like gather fat and uh, during the winter you're like hibernating basically at least in in, in like the aboriginal state so, so what would your strategy be if um, you just have to work on a deadline and you're not uh, like hardcore super like someone who sleeps every night for eight hours perfectly but uh, you actually have two hours of sleep like, what would you do the next day? Would you fast? Yeah. Would you mm. eat? Um, uh, thing or, or yeah. When would you eat? Would you do it breakfast or, or only? Yeah. 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 Yeah it's still uh, easier for your body to stay in a fast state and it's going to like mitigate some of the damage because you're not putting you know stuff into your system and uh, you're allowing your body to repair itself in the fast state and uh, recover from the uh, sleep deprivation uh, but at the same time uh, still having maybe some ketones like a bulletproof coffee uh, or some MCT oil or those sorts of things they will also give your brain this alternative fuel source and they're going to help you to overcome this energy crisis. So that's, a, that's also like a good strategy to have some fats, some healthy fats in your system and uh, kind of flood yourself with an alternative fuel source. But at the same time, also, I would also do like maybe take a nap, uh, do some polyphasic sleeping, that sort of thing. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you <laughs> That's a hint. <laughs> and you know, saunas and those sorts of things, they're also good for lower the stress. Well, it's basically polyphasic, well, monophasic sleeping is the regular type of sleeping where you're sleeping once throughout the night. But polyphasic sleeping is where you dissect that period into several chunks throughout the 24-hour period. So, for instance, you like a siesta sleep is an example of polyphasic sleeping. You sleep for like maybe, you sleep a shorter period during the night, but then you have like a, another sleeping period uh, around the afternoon or something. But you can also do it like you sleep only an hour for like seven times <laughs> throughout the day or like 20, 20 minute naps or something. So yeah, there, yeah, like there are different, different types of doing it, but essentially is that you disperse it uh, throughout the entire 24 hour period, which is another topic for another workshop. <laughs> so yeah, the brain has the, the master clock for the circadian rhythms located inside the hypothalamus and it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which then uh, regulates all the other uh, clocks inside your body, like all the organs, all the cells, they have their own clock and they all have their own circadian rhythm. And the one that is controlling the functioning of all these minor clocks is the central clock in the brain. And that central clock is uh, regulated by cues coming from the light, coming from food, and physical activity and temperatures, like I mentioned. And these, these uh, clocks control all these sleep wakefulness cycles, your cognitive functioning, your metabolism, and uh, yeah, heart, heart rate, blood pressure, blood sugar levels, those things are very much linked to this. And actually, I want to start off with like the most important nutrient 
besides oxygen, that's probably sunlight, because uh, without sunlight, there wouldn't be like no life on Earth. And uh, sunlight is only not important for vitamin D, which is like a very important master hormone, but it's also very critical for uh, offsetting the proper circadian rhythm. And uh, morning sunlight, especially if you if it transmits through the eyes into the brain, then that's going to you know, start the proper circadian rhythm and your body is going to detect that, okay, it's the daytime and therefore we have to, you know, kick things into gear. Uh, rather than staying indoors most of the time, we should, you know, get a healthy dose of sunlight in the morning right after waking up, which could, could be considered like the first dose of nutrition. And uh, secondly, like throughout the day, it's also pretty good to go outside frequently as to keep yourself aligned with these rhythms. What do you think about those people who wake up super early? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. There are some, let's say, chronotypes between people. Like some people are more morning people, some are later birds. So, in reality, there are the difference is maybe like a few hours. Uh, but if people deviate from the uh, the the kind of um, optimal circadian rhythm too much, then it's, um, it's a sign of just being out of, a, out of uh, sync with the circadian rhythms. So there is no, no real person whose natural circadian rhythm would be to go to bed at 2 a.m. and wake up at 10 a.m. or vice versa, go to bed at like 7 p.m. and wake up at 2 a.m. Like they're just out of sync with the uh, natural rhythms of the environment, which isn't a problem that in of itself but uh, it may just it may lead some lead to some problems eventually. Who knows? The difference is that although if if some some people would wake up at four a.m., they could still get you know plenty of sunlight in the morning. You don't have to wake up right with the sunrise because you know these these things changes throughout the seasons as well. Like in the winter months, you would get the first sunlight only in like ten AM, especially in Finland or something. So you're not going to sleep until ten AM either. So you're still awake before the sunrise. But as the sun arises, then you should, you know, get to get to as much uh, some of this exposure to the sunlight as, as much as possible. How do we find our right time to sleep? Right time to sleep. Uh, well I think uh, it's you would uh, try to, you can entrain these circadian rhythms uh, quite quite well, so to say. Everyone has their own unique rhythm and uh, the differences are based upon like your habits, a little bit of genetics, but not a lot, mostly habits and mostly like the, uh, the rhythms that you follow yourself. So yeah, you can, <laughs> you can tr try to, you know, see whether or not you're more of a morning person or you're, you probably already know, are you a morning person or a late, later person? So you just adjust it a little bit there, but essentially you try to more gravitate towards uh, this natural circadian rhythm of waking, trying to move as close to the sun as possible. Because if you were to be like camping outside for a week, then you wouldn't naturally start to sleep according to the sun and wake up because there there aren't no like social media or television keeping you up at night. So we're reaching the concept of time restricted time restricted eating, uh, which is very much uh, linked to the circadian rhythms and uh, 
essentially what it means is uh, the confining of your daily calories within a certain time frame and uh, not having them like deliberately all the time. So there is some research showing that um, if you compare the standard eating patterns of most Westerners, which is like from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to bed, like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. But truthfully, like most people's eating window is probably like 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. or something. Then, uh, and if you compare it to like some form of time-restricted eating, which is like from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. and eating your food only within like uh, six or eight hours, then you can see that uh, even though the calories and the food eaten is the same, the out health outcomes are different. Like uh, the people who eat in a time-restricted manner, their, their insulin is lower, they're more insulin sensitive, their blood pressure is lower, they have less oxidative stress, they have less, uh, less you know, uh, other health, health problems, and they're essentially healthier because their body is uh, aligned with the circadian rhythms and uh, they're also eating less in, a less in a shorter time frame, so to say. That's, that's a, like a really cool biohack or it's a very unique metabolic effect that you get from the time restricted eating because uh, although you may be eating the same amount of food the idea of you eating it in a smaller time frame and allows your body to uh, experience some unique effects that promote longevity as well as a circadian uh, alignment and especially example for example in mice uh, one group of mice were able to eat 24 hour for, for uh, 24 hours with no restrictions whenever they wanted and uh, a second group of mice was able to eat within 13 hours and the last group of mice ate only like once a day within three hours so uh, the outcomes of this study also show that the mice who ate uh, less frequently they also didn't have disease and they were able to live longer versus the mice who were, you know, eating all the time, their lifespan was much shorter and uh, their health outcomes was also worse, although they were eating the same amount of food. Do you know how much of a difference it made to their life? Lifespan? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I think it was probably like 30% or something, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the problem with is also that <laughs> fasting for... Uh, 20 hours in mice is probably a lot longer in humans. So mice have like a much faster metabolic rate and they also have shorter lifespans. So uh, in humans that would probably entail like, I don't know, eating it once every five days or three days, something like that. But it's the core idea is still there that the confinement gives you like a pretty unique metabolic effect. And uh, furthermore in humans, they've also compared what's the difference between eating earlier versus eating later and in this study uh, they took uh, they took uh, 25 people and they divided them into two groups the first two weeks uh, or the first uh, yeah the first week the one of the groups ate early in the day they ate from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the second group ate from uh, 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. So one of them ate earlier and one of them ate later. But they all, both of them ate in a 
shorter time frame. They ate in a time-constricted manner. And then they had a two-week washout period where they would you know, eat normally, regularly to kind of negate any of the adaptations. And then they, they did the opposite for another week where the one who ate earlier then ate later and they, the other group who ate later ate earlier. And eventually they found that um, there was no difference between eating earlier versus eating later as long as the, uh, the time in which they ate was shorter, so to say. When they were eating without no restrictions, then their blood glucose was higher and their other health markers were also worse because they weren't like fasting, they weren't eating in a time-constricted manner versus if they eat earlier or later, then their fasting blood sugar was lower thanks to being thanks to spending time in a more longer time in a fasting state. So the it doesn't matter whether or not you eat earlier or later, if, as long as you eat in a shorter time frame, you know, the, the magic happens in the shorter time frame. And uh, because you're like spending more time in a fasting state and you're spending less time in a fit state where you're digesting food, etc. And uh, in addition to the circadian alignment, this sort of time-restricted eating also gives you the activation of autophagy, which is uh, one of the, one of the another longevity-boosting uh, processes that uh, helps many organisms, or it's linked to increased lifespan and longevity in a lot of species. And part of the reason why time-restricted eating and fasting works is because of autophagy as well. So if you block autophagy then you're not going to see a lot of the longevity boosting benefits versus if you do have autophagy activated, whether that be thanks to exercising or thanks to fasting, then you do see increased longevity in these, uh, in these studies. So if you, the main idea essentially is that if you compare the standard three meals a day versus some aspects of time-restricted eating, then uh, you're gaining a lot of unique metabolic benefits that you wouldn't otherwise get. Uh, for example, like if you're eating um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, then you're keeping your blood sugar, your insulin somewhat higher than if you were to be skipping some meals. And, uh, and that's essentially not optimal for long longevity because you're in a, in a fed state and uh, your body is uh, anabolic, which is growing and accumulating mass. But if you were to just extend this period of fasting a little bit, for example, this is an example of one meal, then you're prolonging the period in which your body is activating its longevity pathways, such as autophagy, and you're also prolonging the periods in which you're staying in ketosis, uh, which is like being in a fat-burning state. And uh, yeah, like um, just the act of skipping some meals or confining the eating window even though you may be eating the same amount of calories within that time frame, you're still getting some unique benefits. So, um, you know, calories in versus calories out is important, but it's not like uh, it's, uh, it changes based upon, or it's, it's depending on a lot of the circadian aspects as well and uh, the uh, time restricted manner. I have a question. Is it related also uh, to certain maybe stages of life you are in? Like, for example, if you are like, High intensive like, yeah. worker or like, right, right. workout, like extreme workouts, marathons, yeah, yeah. bodybuilding, stuff like that. Would you then also advise that time restricted 
diet? Yeah, definitely. Like there is no one one size solution to every person. Like yeah, if a person is uh, doing a lot of exercise or if their energy requirements are very high, then of course they would uh, need to eat more frequent as well. And uh, on the other hand, if someone has some sort of a disease or they're like sedentary, they're not particularly active, then they don't need to eat that frequently either. So it's yeah, a lot to do with uh, the individual and what's their requirements as well as what's the physical condition. So it's not like yeah, everyone has to eat one meal a day, everyone has to eat three meals a day, etc. etc. So it's a, it's, a, it's a message of uh, trying to find, trying to figure out what's your optimal uh, window for eating based upon your uh, lifestyle and uh, your physical requirements. Because something I'm trying to find, as, as you know, I don't have too much knowledge around the, the diet, so what I'm trying to find is some kind of signal that we can listen to to find that optimal. Yeah. For example, with sleeping, I heard that one of the best advice is just, you know, wake up when you rest and sleep when you're tired, right? Yeah. That, that, as simple as that, right? Whereas uh, with food, a lot of times you feel a craving, so you, you would listen to that. You say, I want mm. to eat food, that means my body needs it. But from what you're saying, that sometimes you need to go through that stage where right. you're restricting on purpose, so you get used to it. Yeah. How to find that signal where you can actually judge my body really needs food versus no, actually doesn't need it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a... That's a good question. So there's a, like a big difference between uh, physiological hunger and psychological hunger. So usually, you know, uh, some psychological hunger has to do with some cravings and being some, somewhat distracted by food. You're trying to escape uh, a certain discomfort with food and you're trying to uh, like maybe just give yourself a good time and entertainment. But physical, physical, <laughs> physical hunger is more like real like visceral type of hunger where you're actually feeling that you need to eat something which should you wait for that uh i would say that you would want to you know experience some hunger at least some parts of the day like it shouldn't be like an immediate immediate urge to start eating right away after you feel hungry you should maybe like wait a bit to see what happens because these things they they rise and uh rise and fall quite frequently and uh, very often throughout the day and most of them has to do with uh, like a habitual conditioning as well if you're used to eating so cert at certain times you're used to having snacks at certain times then your body is also going to start expecting them at that time so it's going to preemptively create this hunger but uh, if you recondition or you reprogram yourself then those those uh, feelings or those uh, cravings will also go away eventually and you're going to after a while, you're going to realize, okay, when do I actually need it? And what, what kind of uh, require, or what's my goals even? Like if, you're, if, you're, if your goal is to lose weight, then uh, it doesn't matter whether or not your body tells you that you should eat. <laughs> you know, it, it's going to, whether or not you're going to eat, it depends on your choice. Do you want to lose the weight or not, you know? My very simplistic thinking goes into the way that the more energy theoretically means I can use that energy to be productive. Mm. Very simplistic term. So I would, for example, want to optimize my diet for being productive. So if I would experiment with the fasting, I notice that the distraction of being hungry was impacting too yeah, much my yeah. productivity to, to actually contribute. Yeah, to yeah. In that case, in that case, yeah. Like as you're getting used to these things, then you can use stuff like the uh, the, the fatty coffee or the MCT oil or something to give yourself this uh, energy source without like really eating something or without breaking a fast fully so you're still experiencing some aspects of the fast but you're getting the uh, increased energy from the ketones and the fats 
to give your brain this energy that would uh, satiate the cravings. So as you're getting used to it, that's, that can be something uh, to implement as a practice and as a habituation. Yeah. And I would add one simple thing for everybody to remember that my observation is that many times when we feel hungry, we should hydrate. <laughs> yeah. Because those are also many times kind of same signaling pathways and it's a good kind of reminder that every time you feel hungry, first hydrate and then see do you still feel hungry. Yeah. Or go for a walk. <laughs> That's also I've seen pretty effective. And yeah, in practice, like I think uh, skip, skipping like one meal a day is uh, something that all, almost all people can do. And it's also very healthy and beneficial for the circadian rhythms. So uh, the kind of Goldi Goldilocks zone, in my opinion, is the 16 and 8 type of fasting method where you're just fasting for 16 hours and eating within 8 hours and, uh, instead of eating with, over the course of like 12 or 13 hours, which the vast majority of people do. So you're confining it and you're getting a lot of these unique benefits uh, such as autophagy and uh, the other longevity genes. So for a lot of time, the popular advice was that to eat a lot of small meals. Right. <laughs> so you think that's basically out of the window? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's uh, the, like the idea of eating small frequent meals depends on like who's, who's saying it. Like if it's a bodybuilder who says you need to eat very frequently in order to build more muscle, then it's true. Like, yeah, more, smaller frequent meals will build more muscle because you're keeping your body in a more anabolic state. Uh, but like most people don't want to be bodybuilders. <laughs> like the average person isn't interested in like maximizing muscle growth. They're just interested in staying healthy and losing fat and that sort of things. So it's, in my opinion, it has just, you know, gravitated or it's migrated from the world of bodybuilding and fitness into the world of regular people. But it's not really that applicable for most people. Uh, but also like the idea that you need to like, like keep your metabolism running with these small meals is also false. Because uh, whether or not you eat two large meals or six small meals, you're still going to burn the same amount of calories for the digestion of those meals. So even if you're stoking the fire, so to say, very frequently, that's not going to burn more calories. Uh, you know, you're just going to burn more calories per meal with the smaller meal, with the larger meals, so to say. The, the amount of calories you burn per meal depends on the macronutrient ratios of that meal and like what's inside there like uh, whether that be proteins, carbs or fats. So it's not, it's not linked to the frequency, it's linked to the, uh, the macronutrient ratios. And if you have uh, for breakfast just coffee or a drink, is it considered fasting or not? Yeah, that's, that's fine. Like uh, the coffees, coffees still don't uh, break a fast. They actually stimulate some aspects of it, like they stimulate autophagy and uh, ketosis and so on. Even with ECT oil in it? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent, but it's like, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, starting to go into like some blended state, but it's but it's not like a worst. It's not the worst thing. <laughs> what else do you have in fasting besides the coffee? Uh, well, teas, all those uh, herbal teas, as well as uh, you know many adaptogens uh, like chaga, reishi, mushrooms, those sort of things, and apple cider vinegar, for example. Uh, that's also like doesn't have like any significant calories, but anything you know. Things that would break a fast would be including some sugars or carbs or some proteins. Those would be like more the very stricter uh, things that break a fast. Does any tea or coffee? 
yeah, you, like, like, that's like the safest bet or water and uh, mineral water, those sort of things. Yeah, like uh, in this study that we mentioned, or uh, where was it? Yeah, in this study they showed that uh, this group skipped dinner and they ate breakfast and lunch. But in the next, next study that was showed, this showed that there was no difference between skipping breakfast or skipping dinner as long as the, the uh, timing or the time window was there. So the magic is, the most important part is the shorter eating window. In, in, instead of uh, when this is placed, but there are some nuances to it, um, which I'm going to add later. But yeah, basically, it's not that important when you eat it, as long as it's in a shorter time frame. So if I may, by um, uh, omitting dinner, it may impact your sleep, and you may sleep very bad because you're uh, you are hungry, feeling hungry, or because you don't have enough uh, molecules in your body. Right. Uh, well, some people would 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 feel that, but some people wouldn't. So it's a very depends on the individual. Like some some people sleep fine when they're fasting, but some people don't. So it's very context dependent. So another reason why fasting is beneficial is because of growth hormone. So uh, for example, usually when you're just you know going about your business then your body does experience very small amounts of growth hormone uh, throughout the day. So growth hormone is this hormone that helps to burn fat and it also enhances bone density and it has like anti-aging properties in a sense. And usually if you're eating frequently, then your body doesn't really do a lot of, uh, you know, it doesn't promote a lot of growth hormone compared to some, when you're fasting, then your body is actually you know, releasing growth hormone much more frequently and at much larger doses. So, for example, a 24-hour fast in this study raised growth hormone by, you know, up to, it's all, it's all you know, sevenfold or something like that. So, uh, the fasting aspect is a very potent stimulator of growth hormone because you are in a, this very catabolic state and your body actually tries to maintain its lean tissue and it tries to, you know, uh, mobilize a lot of the fat and uh, try to promote the retention of muscle mass. Is there any other way we can promote hormone besides fasting? Yeah, well, exercise does it as well, like especially like resistance exercise, not cardio. Like resistance, muscle building exercises, those things will release growth hormone. And then there's like sleep as well, actually. <laughs> a, good, a good night's sleep is a, because uh, most of the growth hormone actually gets released uh, in deep sleep. So 70% uh, of it actually is uh, released in deep sleep. So uh, you do, you wouldn't want to you know, uh, inhibit that process because like during sleep, your body is repairing itself and your body is actually releasing a lot of these other longevity uh, genes and proteins like autophagy and sirtuins and those things. During the sleep, your body is repairing itself. And if your sleep is jeopardized, then you're missing out on a lot of the potential for living longer and staying healthier. So that's why it's not that good of an idea to be uh, eating immediately before going to bed either because if you're eating, then you're suppressing growth hormone to a certain extent, and that's not going to, you're, you're losing some of the uh, release in the growth hormone and fat burning that would take place. So you said the growth hormone releases in the deep, deep sleep. Yeah. So how would you increase on deep sleep? Uh, well, deep sleep is uh, very much 
uh, linked with uh, melatonin production as well. Melatonin is the sleep hormone and uh, blue light especially inhibits the production of melatonin. So naturally, as the sun sets, your body starts to uh, increase melatonin to make you fall asleep. Uh, but the problem is that if you're looking at screens, you're looking at uh, television and social media, then you're you know, sending the blue light in into your eyes, which will inhibit melatonin. So using some blue blockers is a very, very important strategy. And uh, I've seen some pretty massive improvements in my deep sleep just because of using that. Uh, but of course, like being psychologically active and you know hyperactive and stressed out, those things will also uh, make you make you uh, harder for you to fall asleep and uh, lower the deep sleep. But then also like temperatures, uh, warmer temperatures are actually worse for sleep than rather than cold. So slightly chilly and cooler environments are better for uh, sleep, and especially melatonin. So you would use a blue blocker from the time the sun goes down. Is it the time you start? Yeah, I would. I, I usually use it. Maybe like you probably have like one one hour is probably like a good starting point at minimum where you should start winning them. But like two hours is also fine. Why is a lower temperature more conducive to better sleep? Uh, well, it helps to promote uh, melatonin, so to say. So uh, as you're when you're you know doing sleep, your body has to repair itself, and in order for those repair processes to take place, it has to lower its metabolic rate as well. Because if it's if it's if your body is busy with the metabolism and uh, if it has a higher metabolic rate, then it takes energy away from the repair processes, so to say. So there's the, the, the dichotomy between repair and growth. So if you're growing, you're being more active, then you can't repair that efficiently because your body prioritizes one or the other. And in order to repair, then the temperature also has to lower down and the metabolic rate has to you know, get, get decreased. And that's where the kind of circadian rhythm aligns together in the deep sleep, where your metabolism gets lower, your body temperature drops, and uh, your melatonin increases, etc. So it's a very collect. The, all these hormones come together in the deep sleep to work together. So, so the, uh, the light sleep period is not so much beneficial. Yeah, light sleep. Light sleep uh, is more of like a buffer to kind of trick your body <laughs> into going into deep sleep. Because if you're very in nature, then if you were to go into immediately deep sleep, then you're going to leave yourself vulnerable to like predators or snakes or whatever it is. So it's a very vulnerable state to be in. Like literally you have to like six hours lying unconscious somewhere under a tree. You're very vulnerable. So the light sleep is just a, like tricking yourself. You're not falling asleep, you know, right yet as to kind of be very ready to run away whenever danger arises or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, light sleep has this role, but it has like some repair processes as well which aren't you know that important as deep sleep one most of the ones happen in deep sleep so if you were to cut down on any aspects of the sleep then it would be light sleep and like getting more light sleep but very little deep sleep isn't healthy <laughs> like the light, the deep sleep is still more important any advice for light sleep well i think uh it's it, it's very much has to do with the fundamentals like just the uh the circadian optimization getting uh, in touch with the, the light cycles and also going to bed and waking up at the same time consistently because that's a very important uh, cue or a very important uh, like the habituator of these rhythms so if you're waking up at irregular times all the time then your body never has the opportunity to adapt and it's constantly just experiencing this stress and i would add maybe one more story that i haven't mentioned mentioned of the growth hormone there's an article I can send you by Rhonda Patrick, who Timo referenced yeah. before, yeah. 
and she writes quite in depth about sauna exposure, mm. sauna bathing, and heat exposure. Yeah. And heat exposure seems to be also one of the sources that can spike up your growth hormone quite significantly. It's dose dependent. Yeah. And in the extreme doses where you bathe in sauna twice a day for one hour, which is quite extreme for most of us, you do get something up to like 16 fold increase on the yeah. growth hormone. So yeah. that's another way. Plus, it makes you makes you sleep well <laughs> after a sauna. So if you look at it, then uh, the kind of optimal window for eating would be a little bit of like along the lines that you don't eat immediately before going to bed and you have this short time frame where you stop eating and vice versa in the morning, you don't eat immediately after waking up as to allow your body to kickstart the circadian rhythm as well. And you have this compressed eating window a little bit in some aspects. And uh, this is my kind of hypothesis about what would be these optimal meal timings based upon this, these, uh, these uh, research that I've just shared with you. So if you were to sleep about six to eight hours, then uh, if that sleep were to be aligned with the circadian rhythms, then you would sleep somewhere between, you would go to bed somewhere between like nine to 11 p.m. and you would wake up in the morning as sun as the sun starts to rise around 5 to 7 a.m. somewhere around there like there are differences between people but that's the kind of over like the general gist of it you know maybe some people would wake up at 4 uh, or some people will wake up at 8 doesn't matter like th that's kind of the general uh, time window where you would want to wake up and uh, during the night you would experience uh, recovery you would experience physical repair and that's the time where melatonin is is high so this is the time where you don't want to eat <laughs> don't eat at night that's a, not a good idea and in the morning uh, once the sun starts rising then uh, your body also starts to produce cortisol which is the stress hormone that is the uh, supposed to wake you up and increase your alertness and give your body the energy to you know, get out and uh, start moving so uh, at that point at that moment it's not that suggestible to be eating either because uh, the stress hormone is high so if you are stressed out and you're consuming calories then your body is also more prone to storing those calories as fat so to say so for stressed out people tend to carry more body fat and it's harder for them to lose the fat as well because you know the stress and the cortisol is making them retain the fat and the body doesn't want to lose it so in a stressed out state with high levels of cortisol it's not advisable to be eating so a few hours after waking up should be also spent for some fasting as to kind of postpone the uh, or to allow the cortisol to do its job because cortisol although it has some negative effects it also has positive effects like it makes you burn fat it uh, increases ketosis it increases your mental alertness etc so if you're shutting the cortisol right away shutting it down by eating then you're also missing out on the circadian aspect so to say you want to experience this surge of cortisol in the morning as to uh, you know, allow your circadian clocks to rev up for the rest of the day. If you stack somehow the habit repeating, like for example, what I notice is that after exercise, I have this habit that I eat. So if, if I have a dinner, that I like to schedule exercise before dinner. Mm. Uh, initially, it was because I believe that after like exercise, you need protein, so right. you need to uh, uh, you know, get some energy. Right. For that. But do you stack like this uh, habits repeating with this cycle? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, like I myself uh, would also uh, exercise before eating, so to say, because then after the exercise, my body would use the nutrients and the food 
much more better. Like the nutrient partitioning would be more effective. The, like the, the foods that I would eat, they would be used for recovery and muscle growth rather than fat storage, so to say. So if I were to wake up after a long night's sleep, I haven't moved around or any at all, then there's no real reason for me to be eating uh, food either because my physical demands are much lower versus after an exercise session, my physical demands and the amount of energy that I've burnt is also much higher. So it makes sense to be kind of compensating for it and re recovering from that. Right. Uh, so this is the yeah, well, it depends on. Uh, well, yeah, like uh, it can be that way, but it can be also that um, most people can, you know, they can very safely exercise in a faster state. But also, if you're exercising in a faster state all the time, then you're not really going to be able to make a lot of progress. Like your progress may be somewhat slower. So uh, it is better if you're. If you have some nutrients before the exercise as well, then your performance during the exercise would be better and your body would also experience better like hypertrophy results from that because uh, it, would, uh, it would experience less catabolism, muscle catabolism during the exercise, so to say. So uh, you can even do it in a way that you uh, eat your first meal, then you wait a few hours, then you exercise, and then you eat your second meal. So you're still getting the best of the both worlds. You're getting the fasting from the morning, you're getting the pre-workout uh, nourishment, you're getting the exercise, a good exercise, and you're getting the post-workout uh, recovery. So uh, that's a, like a best of both worlds in this sense. But fasted, fasted workouts are also fine uh, every once in a while, I think. But I think the problem some people may run into is that if they start to do the fasting and they start doing low carb and they start doing hit classes and those sorts of things, they, they may hit like burnout uh, quite fast because their body isn't used to that yet. So uh, I think it's uh, better to like try to uh, practice some precautionary measures rather than trying to go all out all the time. Right. Well, if 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 cortisol is low in the morning, then it's a sign of um, like circadian misalignment, and the body is just not producing its own cortisol. Uh, the way you would fix that would be to try to entrain the circadian uh, rhythms, so to say. They would have to do like light therapy, you know, uh, in the morning, especially in Finland. Like uh, they would use like blue light devices in the face or this human charger that goes into the ears. That sort of thing would reconfigure the circadian rhythms that would start to make them produce cortisol in the morning and even like things like coffee in the morning would uh, also raise the cortisol so yeah like because if they are if they if they're feeling like you know semi-tired and fatigued without the cortisol then things that would promote the cortisol would be good to uh, re rebuild that uh, circadian uh, rhythm what do you think about drinking the hydrogen water and what else we can drink before exercise rather than like uh, like true tea and also the molecular hydrogen. Uh, well, it's uh, the thing with antioxidants is that if you're consuming a lot of antioxidant all the time, then you're mitigating some of the, then you will like lower the oxidative stress on your body. Whether or not you need it depends on how much oxidative stress are you actually experiencing, so to say. If you are, yeah, like if you have some sort of disease or sickness, or if you are coming from jet lag or some, some sleep deprivation, etc. 
or some infection, then yeah, it would make it maybe sense to take some antioxidants or some molecular hydrogen to lower that oxidative stress. But if you are already healthy, your oxidative stress levels are low, then taking these antioxidants can actually be harmful because uh, you're making your body more vulnerable to those things and you're weakening yourself. So uh, even, even some studies show that, you know, antioxidant supplementation and, you know, a bunch of antioxidant foods after a workout negate the positive effects from the workout because you need some of the inflammation and you need the small amount of stress for your body to adapt and get used to it. But if you're blocking that signal with the antioxidants and whether that be molecular hydrogen or whatever, then you're not really progressing and you're, yeah, you're making your body weaker because it's shutting off that uh, positive signal. So some aspects, some inflammation and some stress are good, especially if it's coming from exercise, uh, but uh, you don't want to, you don't want to have it chronically elevated. Maybe I would, I wouldn't like take, you know, um, molecular hydrogen or any antioxidant on a continuous basis all the time. I would take them only if I had like some serious infection or some like jet lag, some, or if I were to go on a plane or something. Uh, so yeah, the cortisol rises in the morning. So that's a, like a perfect opportunity to also prolong the fast state a little bit. So you've been fasting during the sleep and the first few hours after waking up should also be spent fasting uh, for the cortisol and the circadian rhythm benefit. And uh, ideally, I would say that maybe four to eight hours after waking up, that's a good time length for uh, the fasting. And in that case, the first meal could be around like 10 to 12 a.m., somewhere around there. Or some people may have it around nine, doesn't matter. Like the idea is that you just aren't spending the, the entire 24-hour period in a fit state and you're giving your digestion a break and you're just experiencing some aspect of fasting. Uh, then you kind of, after you've been eating, then you're going, you're shifting your body from the fasted state into a fit state. And uh, this is the opposite of fasting. You're, uh, instead of breaking down, instead of catabolizing, you're building up and you're being anabolic. So this is the nutrition aspect. And can you explain the difference between the anabolism uh, and the release of the growth hormone uh, during the fasting state? And the difference because. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little confusing for me. Right. Well, yeah, your metabolism has two sides. One is being uh, catabolism, which is the breakdown and like the destruction of uh, energy. And that happens when you're like exercising or when you're fasting. And the opposite to that is anabolism, which is the growth and the build-up of uh, energy. And that happens when you're eating. Uh, yeah, but you just explained that you have those spikes when you are fasting of the growth hormone. Right. Well, growth hormone is like a misleading name because growth hormone isn't a hormone that makes you grow. <laughs> a growth hormone is just a name for because it, it's very high in children as they're growing up. But the role of growth hormone or the mechanism of growth hormone isn't growth. It's actually just the, the protection of uh, muscle mass and fat burning. So it's actually like a, like a catabolic hormone, but uh, the name is somewhat misleading, so to say. So growth hormone raises during exercise and fasting and sleep when you're being catabolic, but it's not going to make you build new tissue. It can stimulate it once you start eating again, but it's not happening while you are you know, concurrently fasting. I mean, one theory of explanation I've heard on this topic is that as you are fasting longer and longer, the muscle is not the first thing you want to break down, right? It's the fat source. You want to protect your heart and your muscles to survive. 
to a spike in growth hormone which protects those muscle tissues at mm. the time makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, once you start eating, you're in the anabolism and uh, ideally, I think the daily eating window would be somewhere around like four to eight hours or you know, four to ten hours, something like that. The most important part would be to just not have, not spend more time in a fit state compared to the fasted one. So you wouldn't want to be eating over the course of 14 hours and fast only 10 hours because in that case you're not really gaining the benefits of autophagy or you're not gaining the benefits of uh, sirtuins and these other longevity, longevity proteins, so to say. So in general, it would be better to spend less time in a fed state rather than in a, in a, in a fed one. And uh, ideally that would be like, you know, if 24 hours in a day, if you, if you fast for 12 hours and you eat over the course of 12 hours as well, then that's like 50-50. I think that's not a real significant uh, situation where you would gain these benefits. So you'd have to be gravitating more towards spending more time in a fast state. And ideally that would be like maybe, at the minimum I think it would be like eating within 10 hours and fasting like 14 hours, that would be like the minimum. But optimally you would be, you know, confining it a little bit more and uh, eating only maybe within eight hours. That's like the golden standard. And instead of having three meals, just have two meals. I've heard and for the benefit of the women in the room that is it true that women need a longer feasting state or they, they benefit more from that or less? Or? Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, women would, women, uh, they uh, should fast a bit less, so to say, because their body is, let's say, less uh, robust for handling fasting. Uh, because like they're supposed to carry offspring, etc. So they're more vulnerable to these sort of uh, nutritional stressors. Uh, but but they also experience, the, the research shows that uh, women experience more ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. So they're just physically also more, uh, they feel more discomfort <laughs> while fasting because they get hungrier. So uh, yeah, there are some gender differences. And I would say that for women, they can maybe uh, break the fast a few hours earlier or something, but they can still fast. They don't. They don't just have to fast that long. <laughs> it's, it's two hours. The feasting window is typically two hours longer. Or yeah, I would. Yeah, maybe two hours is a good. Two hours is a good uh, time frame. Is that valid only before menopause? Right. Not sure. I I I haven't looked into that, but uh, would make sense. In the <laughs> Yeah, well, but the problem is also that as you get older, then you can't fast that long either because you're, you're, um, you're, it's harder for you to build muscle as you get older and maintain it. So older people, they should also fast less because they need to feed more and you know, maintain muscle tissue. For men also. Men also, yeah. And lastly, then there's like, as the, after the sunset uh, or the, as the sun starts to set, then you should also start to stop eating and ideally you would want to maybe avoid eating at least like a two to four hours before going to bed so that's going to give you like a pretty good zone where you're getting quite a substantial amount of fasting every day but you're still getting the nutrients what's your view on the snacks like the continuous snacks like protein bars foods uh well those things uh like I said, some bodybuilders would uh, prefer those, but most people, they don't need to do it. And uh, I think they wouldn't want to do it either if they were to understand some of the concepts. 
So yeah, snacking can be useful for hunger, but at the same time, hunger can be good <laughs> in, in small amounts and is useful. So like snacking in general is going to just keep you in this very fit state all the time and it's never going to allow you to dip into uh, like the fastest state where all the like magic happens. It depends on your goals. Like if you don't care about these things, then go ahead. But uh, um, yeah, like that's like just the yeah, the circadian rhythms. They would work even though you wouldn't do it. Because I read somewhere that, that those all those benefits of fasting they also only trigger after the set of thresholds, right? So it's almost like I, in this case you're talking about shorter window. But I read well, this is. Well, this is uh, even this is not even that linked to like the benefits of fasting that you get from five days of fasting. This is the idea of daily circadian alignment, so to say. This is uh, even if you don't get like these massive autophagy boosting benefits from from this one day fast, you would still get the circadian benefits. You would still you would still align your bodies with the circadian cues of the environment, so to say. So it's a different thing slightly, but you would get a bit of the smaller benefits from the autophagy still, although it's like um, in, within a one day. Yeah. I remember reading about uh, taking a spoon of honey before going to bed. Mm. Uh, how many calories will, I mean, break the fast or like... Right, well... It could not work in the <laughs> evening part of fast. Well, like, a, well, like a, a teaspoon of honey is not, not a big deal. It's just your body would uh, use it and... Uh, some people say that it does help them to sleep better. So if it makes you sleep better, then it's worth it in a sense, because sleep is more important than thinking of, oh, 100 calories of honey is breaking my fast or, or something. Oh, so it's not a, you know, I think it's not a big, it's not, it's not a big deal there. Yeah, and your body would go back into a fast state quite fast. Okay, good. All right. So I'm going to start wrapping up, I think, because uh, we uh, start with the next workshop. So yeah, I think this is the kind of, overview of like an optimal day of uh, meal timing of like when is the best time to eat uh, to fit with the circadian rhythms. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was wealth of knowledge. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Hormel podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.